2: I got it in my pocket here, um, one of my challenge coins. On the back of it, there's the red ruby slippers, right? And I had these made years ago. It says, the true guardian's greatest battle is the battle that lies within, the struggle to master one's ego, to police not for gain or glory, but to balance the scales of justice. And I told my guys, the job's not over until we find these slippers. That's why they're on this coin. They can be found. There's a story to it. We just have to be diligent.
0: I'm Sayward Darby, and I'm Ariel Ramshandani. Welcome to No Place Like Home. Episode 4. Dear Dorothy, Hate Oz, Took Shoes. You've probably been wondering, who was actually looking for the stolen ruby slippers? There was finger-pointing, but what about an investigation? You might recall that the day after the crime, there was a single red sequin left on the floor of the Judy Garland Museum in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. It was basically the only piece of hard evidence that anyone found. There wasn't security footage. There weren't any eyewitnesses. So people were left to turn over rocks and tug on threads, hoping to find something Anything,
2: you know, it, it got to be kind of a mythical situation where people had ideas, and it was like, who has who has the ruby slippers?
1: That's Dale Christie, the current mayor of Grand Rapids. He's also a social studies teacher. We met him at a local brewery. It happens to share a wall with the theater that Judy Garland's parents, Frank and Ethel Gum, used to manage at the time of the theft. Christie was on the city council.
2: It was, as I guess maybe you would expect, it was the buzz around town. Everybody had a theory or a conspiracy theory. When somebody lost something, for example, it was like, well, maybe they're with the ruby slippers or, you know, somebody did something daring. It was, I bet you they stole the ruby slippers. Got to to the point where it's almost humorous with all the ideas people were coming up with as to where they went and how they got there.
3: There were rumors that two local kids had stolen them. Someone saw them clomping around in them.
2: Some guy down in San Diego supposedly had them. Oh, we just were at a restaurant and we saw them on the shelf.
3: Was it just vandals?
2: They stuffed them in a paint can.
3: They had thrown them in a Tupperware with rocks. And
4: threw them in a, in a lake. Um, they got burnt in a fire.
1: In a bonfire. It's got to be an inside job.
2: You could even use the word mafia.
1: It did. It caused a big stir. The police waded through a barrage of tips that were less than helpful. Here's Bob Stein, a police officer who worked on the case. You've heard from him in previous episodes and at the beginning of this one.
2: I would get calls on the phone saying, hey, I know where the slippers are. Really? Well, they're at the Smithsonian. I get that like once a year. Someone say, I saw it on TV, they're at the Smithsonian. That's a different pair of slippers, buddy, but... You know, we've been down that that one already.
0: A lot of calls were from people obsessed with film memorabilia. Andy Morgan, the primary detective on the case for a while, followed up on a lot of tips about slippers that turned out to be replicas. He once went to a collector's house that had a shrine to the Wizard of Oz. Some people who called the cops didn't just love the shoes. They were students of them. They knew every inch of them, and they were ready to do some forensic analysis.
2: We'd get calls, hey, if you just give us that sequin that you found that's in evidence, we can do this and that. No, you can't have the sequin. If you didn't find those slippers, I'm sure that sequin, being the only thing left of those slippers, the value would go right through the roof. You know, if you, if you think about it, someone would say, I own the sequin of the stolen slippers. <laughs> In Chicago, this person called and said, Hey, I know where the slippers are. They're at this, either in Chicago, uh, down the street from the police department. They're in this florist place. They are the originals. I'll fax you a picture. You took a picture? No, I sat and I sketched it out. So he faxes me this picture, and I'm like, They look like the slippers, right? I called Chicago PD and said, Can you go over to this place that supposedly has the shoes?
1: The amateur sketch artist was wrong. The florist did not have the slippers. Were you ever like, this is a complete waste of resources?
2: You take a statement from somebody and they say something that piques your interest, you have to go down that rabbit hole. And I'll tell you what, people say it's a waste of time. It's never a waste of time when you can close down that type of uh, rumor or that type of information.
0: In other words, pretty much no tip was too weird to check out. So the police chased dead ends for a decade. Stein tried his best to keep spirits high. That's why he had the challenge coins made, the ones with an image of the slippers and that uplifting quote. He gave them out to cops who worked the case, and to anyone who seemed truly invested in the slippers story. In fact, when we visited Grand Rapids, he offered me one. Other people literally scoured the terrain of northern Minnesota, looking for the ruby slippers.
4: So this is where we dove when, uh, when, when we were looking for the slippers. We had all our equipment right up here, and uh, we went in right here. And then from here, went off around this way. So we, we covered all of this shore.
1: This is John Arsenal, a volunteer diver with the Itasca County Sheriff's Office. He's showing us the Toyoga Mine Pit. About five miles from Grand Rapids. The parking area, at the end of a dirt road, is empty except for one SUV with some teenagers inside. The pit's banks are steep and the water is still and clear as glass.
4: So there's mines that have been here for, you know, since the uh, early 1900s when they started them. You'll see big iron ore dumps that took many, many years, you know, lifetimes. To haul that stuff out of these holes to get the iron to 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 make the stuff that we needed for the world wars even you know so i guess they're a special place just because of that and they're pretty (laughs) pretty. but i bet you'd have a hard time finding a place like this in new york
1: Uh, yes you definitely would
4: back in the late 60s early 70s People would run cars off of the cliffs just to watch them go into the water.
1: How do you run a car and you just put a brick on the gas pedal?
4: Well, on on the top of one of the the banks here, uh, there was a road. Put a brick on the pedal and jam it in gear and let it go over.
1: Just like for fun?
4: Just like for fun, Now.
0: The pit is also a place where people toss things they're trying to hide. If someone robbed a convenience store and stole the cash register, they might pocket the money and dump the machine there. Arsenal's job is looking for stuff like that, alongside the occasional firearm, and even a body. In 2015, John Miner, the founder of the Judy Garland Museum, contacted Arsenal's dive team to ask if they'd look for the ruby slippers in the Tioga pit. Miner offered to pay them.
4: Um, I had to bring it in front of the dive team to, you know, say we we have a possible way of raising some money for the team, um, which we're really not supposed to do. So we just called it a donation. So I, I got it to where they would do it because of the donation part of it. We probably dove for two and a half hours. We had uh, five divers searching different areas. So we covered pretty much all of the easy, accessible spots that a person would, if you you had anything you wanted to get rid of in a hurry, that is where you would have thrown things off from. I was pretty sure they weren't uh, in any any water, just, just because if somebody stole something like that, why would you throw them away? It's just, it doesn't make sense, you know?
0: Arsenal had a good point. Why would someone toss the ruby slippers into an abandoned mine pit? Why would they destroy something so valuable? As it turned out, the dive was mostly a publicity stunt. John Miner got the idea from a PR guy in Minneapolis named Rob Feeney. The dive was timed to coincide with the annual Judy Garland Festival and with the 10th anniversary of the slippers being stolen. The media were invited.
5: And after hours of searching, all divers found were a few metal relics. So the search for the most iconic footwear in American history continues.
4: They asked what I thought about diving for the slippers. I had said that if you come across the homeless person and um, offered them a steak or the ruby slippers, I'm sure they would have taken the steak. Um, you know, who would have thought ruby slippers could be worth a couple million dollars? It just, uh, you know, seems mind-boggling to me that uh, a pair of shoes could be worth that much.
0: The divers didn't find the slippers but Rob Feeney thought that if he could keep grabbing people's attention, it might stir up some new leads, good ones. And he wasn't wrong.
5: We were worried about the media even finding it. But, uh, you know, about two or three days before the event, we started getting phone calls. And then the day of the event, you know, we get up there and there was just, it was crazy. There's media trucks everywhere. And at best, we were hoping for like a top Minnesota story. It was just a pipe. We thought it was a pipe dream. And that happened within like the first day. And then the next day, it was a, it was a weekend dive event. The next day, um, you know, they're talking about it on Good Morning America. And it was a national story.
1: This is Rob Feeney, the PR rep, talking about the 2015 Pit Dive. We spoke with Feeney in his condo near Minneapolis. When we arrived, there was a pistol sitting on his dining room table. It was a prop gun used in the James Bond film, GoldenEye. Turns out, Feeney has more than a passing interest in film memorabilia. The Pit Dive got so much attention that Feeney proposed another idea, one he thought was sure to generate even more buzz. He suggested that John Miner offer reward money for information about the ruby slippers. Here's Miner. They're worth far more than that now. But at the time, a million dollars cash was a lot of money. I made arrangements,
2: you know, to do it. But I was willing to give up a million bucks to get them back.
0: Miner agreed to put up the money anonymously. That would make the whole thing more intriguing. To amp up the drama... Feeney made the announcement about the reward at the scene of the crime, the Judy Garland Museum, alongside John Kelsch, the museum's director.
5: You all set? Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you everyone for coming, and uh, we are here today to make a big announcement. We're very excited about it. A reward has just been offered for $1 million, to and I just said, you know, these are the stipulations. It is a million-dollar board that was put up by an anonymous benefactor in Arizona. He was a very, very big Wizard of Oz fan. John has a house in Arizona. I can't give any more details beyond that. Uh, there are, but uh, I just remember reading that announcement, but still not knowing uh, what was going to happen. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I remember telling my wife at the time after making the announcement, going back to the hotel up in Grand Rapids. I'm like. Well, that was fun. I did not think it would become a global like phenomenon. I mean, it was just mind-blowing.
3: Dorothy's ruby slippers were stolen from a museum. Now someone is offering a million dollars for their safe return. Who
5: stole Dorothy's
1: ruby slippers? You could earn a million dollars if you solve this mystery. An anonymous
3: donor has pledged a million dollar reward for information leading to the recovery of the bedazzled shoes. which was stolen I remember
5: telling my wife, I'm all excited. I'm like, oh my God, you know, not believe this. I just saw it on TV. She's like, you know, oh, shut up. Man. You know, just you're seeing things.
2: There's no way. A movie fan offered a million dollar reward for the return of An anonymous of the
3: donor now offering a one million dollar reward if you find them. Wait a minute, one million? That's not nearly enough. I mean, they're the most iconic footwear of all time.
0: Feeney put his cell phone number on the press release about the reward. Like the Grand Rapids police, he got an avalanche of tips. Maybe even more, because there was cash on offer.
5: We had so many people call. I mean, it was just, a lot of people called me because they are like, oh, Jesus, this guy, I don't, I don't know if people just assume I had a million dollars in my hand just to give someone, or, and they knew I wasn't a cop.
0: Feeney grew his own network of local informants. People were eager to be part of the story.
5: There was this rumor going around that the ruby slippers were cursed. You might have heard heard about that. And I always just kind of laugh that off as ridiculous. But um, they definitely have some sort of, like, power to them. I mean, it sounds crazy, but I I've, I saw it happen so many times to anyone that even could even get, like, remotely close to the criminal case. They would do everything they could to somehow attach themselves to it you know maybe i'm included in that too i mean it definitely impacted my marriage you know because i wasn't getting paid for and i just got so into it i was just so like this is so exciting but i blew off a lot of my own personal responsibilities as a result of that so uh, i wouldn't consider that a curse but um, it, it would definitely inspire people to do things they wouldn't normally do
0: Feeney says he asked the FBI to get involved. He reached out to a private art crime consultant, and he passed tips to the Grand Rapids police. It would be easy to write him off as a nuisance, but the cops came around. Feeney's persistence, it was useful.
2: Feeney was invaluable at that stage. He has a lot of information that uh, we didn't have that he provided us, which helped us.
1: That's Bob Stein again. Feeney became so close with him that Stein gave him one of those challenge coins.
2: He had connects with some people that we didn't. And because of him, we were able to connect the dots. Some people we determined didn't have anything to do with it. But without Rob's help, we wouldn't have been able to as quickly eliminate some of the stuff.
0: In the end, though, it wasn't Feeney's informant network that mattered most. It was the reward.
2: You know, it's all about greed. People want something, and so if if you if you lean on that, you'll get more stuff.
5: When the million dollar reward was announced, you get a lot of bad information too. But we got some really good information on top of that, and you know, money talks, and it, it certainly did.
2: Imagine a old cardboard box that's had some uh, weather to it. You know how they get kind of musty looking and, and, uh, so that's what the box, it was in the evidence room. So I said, Hey, Brian, he goes, what's up? I set the box on his desk and kind of giggled. He's like, Oh, you could see, you can see it in his system. You know, it's like, He's defeated. It was like a giant burden. You were just Yeah, like, I got lifted and he got kind of crushed a little bit. Because you're right, it was a burden. It's important. We all knew it was important.
1: Stein is describing the moment in 2016 when he handed off the Ruby Slippers case to investigator Brian Matson. Matson was working narcotics at the time, and now an unsolved high-profile case with no solid leads was on his plate.
2: I told him, remember what the coin says, you know. But he, he I'm going to tell you, Brian took the bull by the horn.
1: We met Matson in Grand Rapids at a hotel. He was wearing shorts, a baseball hat, and a Guns N' Roses t-shirt. He reminded me of a Little League coach. He was positive, determined. Matson is the kind of guy who always thinks he can get a win.
3: Um, so at that point, I've never seen even the case file on the ruby slippers it was kind of held in almost secrecy in our own department and everything was just kind of piled inside of there was no no real rhyme or reason just loose papers and uh, I found stuff in there like VHS tapes uh, a floppy disk No, try to find a floppy disk reader in today's world it's it's almost non-existent I found one in the recycle pile in the basement of the IT department (laughs) and we were able to Look what was on this floppy disk. It was actually the uh, original crime scene photographs. So it, it took me a solid week just to put this thing together, so that anyone that would need to pick it up or look through it could make sense of what was in that box.
1: Was it one of the longest running? Even at that point, you know, one of the longer running open cases.
3: Yeah, um, almost twelve years. That's that's a long time. And then you you know when you go through a case file from that long ago to try to look what happened, what has been done in the case investigative-wise up until present day, that's a lot of material to go through.
0: Matson was inheriting more than a case. He was also shouldering the emotions surrounding it. The police department felt like it had failed. Some media types and memorabilia collectors were portraying them as keystone cops. Saying they were in over their heads with the slippers investigation.
3: If you look at what we did know at the time, it's an easy assumption to make. You know, we're not doing anything. We're, you know, we're just podunk police. We don't know what we're doing. You know, a lot of brilliant people come from very small communities around the world. So uh, you know, we're no less intelligent than anyone else anywhere else in the United States. We, you know, we did the best we could with the information at hand.
0: After organizing the case file, Matson's first order of business was tying up some loose ends, including a rumor about a strange note that was supposedly sent to the slipper's owner.
3: You know, evidently there was a letter sent to Michael Shaw out in California, a warning hey just that these slippers are going to be stolen type thing, and there was no letter though. So, I, you know, I reached out to Michael Shaw, I reached out to John Kelch. I'm like, hey, you know, you guys alerted us about this letter. and. Strangely, no one seemed to know what I was talking about.
0: Then there was that single red sequin left at the crime scene. It wasn't in the cardboard box.
3: I'm like, hey, I need, to, I need to see this sequin. I was trying to track down through the old files where it is being kept at. you know. And I was like, oh God, has it been lost over the years? We actually had to dig through piles of stuff and we found it in the back of the safe. And the significance of that is it had never been tested for authenticity, for, you know, proper age, proper material.
0: This was important because one theory of the crime hinged on authenticity. In episode two, we talked about how some memorabilia collectors believed Michael Shaw orchestrated the theft by loaning a fake pair to the Judy Garland Museum, then hiring someone to steal them so that he could get an insurance payout.
2: When you start making claims on stuff like that, when you don't have nothing to back it up, you can ruin people's reputation. So I just think it's wrong for people to say that about Mr. Shaw. I don't think he had anything to do with those slippers, you know, and made his life a living hell. Some people were critical, like, well, he wouldn't let people touch the shoes. I said, they were his shoes. You know, I got stuff in my house you're not touching. Even when I'm taking the man or out of a case, I only touch them on the top and the bottom, and I try to do that as little as possible.
0: So could I touch the Ruby slippers? No Matson had the sequin examined. It didn't appear to be a replica.
3: You know, from being involved in this case, it looks like there was a lot of people who would like to have Michael Shaw's slippers. Maybe there's some jealousy there, some some finger pointing.
0: Matson also considered the idea that the theft was an inside job, that John Kelsh or someone else at the museum had been involved.
3: It'd be easy assumption to think that somebody in the know had something to do with it. But there was no information after that fact to show that, you know, they were holding them or trying to sell them or anything like that. So I think John Kelsch was, has been beat up countless times over this. And uh, I don't, you know, I don't think it was deserved.
0: In the summer of 2017, Matson got what he hoped was a good lead when a woman who'd given information to the police before was arrested. The cops were in the habit of asking people they detained if they knew anything about the town's most famous crime.
3: At the time, our, our gang was, hey, if you know where any dead bodies are, some stolen cars, if you can buy some drugs, or you know where the ruby slippers are. And uh, she looked at me, she goes, ruby slippers? Yeah, i just seen them the other day.
0: The woman said she'd seen the shoes at a friend's place, a mobile home surrounded by tents and outbuildings. Matson went to the location with another officer to get a lay of the land. There were people talking outside. Matson and his colleague tried to be stealthy.
3: So we're hiding in the woods on the backside of this property. We got, you know, brush and, and vegetation and the mosquitoes are out there, horrible. So the state agent with me, he's like 6'4", he's a big guy. And it's dead quiet we're listening to this conversation. And you hear the loudest fart you've ever heard in your life. And I look back and I'm like, he's like, I couldn't help it.
0: <laughs> the people they were surveilling didn't hear the noise. Eventually, Matson went to get a warrant so that he could search the property.
3: I just walk up the driveway with the warrant this time. I, I talk to the guy that supposedly holds the slippers. He's like, hey, what's going on? And I just hand him the warrant. I said, here, I'm here for the slippers, man. We're going to search the whole place. And he says, well, why didn't you just tell me? Why didn't you just come up and tell me? He goes, yeah, I, I got him in here. So we go in this house and it's, it's like a hoarder's house. There's like a path through all the, and it's stacked right to the ceilings. So we go in there and I'm like, hey, check that closet again in your room, you know? So he's climbing on stuff and all of a sudden he's like, hey, and this arm comes out with this green box and ribbon. He hands me the box and I undo the ribbon. I can see red. I'm like, holy crap, maybe maybe there's something to this. And I take the lid off. (laughs) And there are these high heels with glitter, red glitter, pink soles. And I'm looking at him and I see made in China on the sole. I'm like, he's like, yeah, don't they? Them are them, right? I'm like, no, they're made in China. I was just disgusted at this point, you know? I sent my wife a picture and the return, the text message that I got back for LOL, them were stripper shoes. <laughs> I was like, oh God. <laughs>
1: Matson brought the shoes back to his office and placed them on a shelf across from a sign that a crankster had sent him in the mail. It reads, Dear Dorothy, Hate Oz, Took Shoes, Find Your Own Way Home. Sign, Toto. The
0: call that changed everything came in July 2017. Matson had gotten so many calls about the ruby slippers. But right from the beginning, he sensed that something was different about this one.
3: It was really strange. There wasn't many staff in the office. It was quiet. I remember just sitting at my computer. Our secretary up front just popped her head in the door, like, hey, I got a phone call. You're going to want to take something about the slippers. Okay, send it back. And for some reason, I recorded. I have no idea why, because we don't always just record an initial telephone call. Is it some weird divine intervention? I, I don't know. Put it on speaker. Hit record. And uh, you know, I'm I'm thinking, okay, it's just another lead, and let's let's hear what the person has to say. And um, you know, the way it started out, hey, is this still an active case? Do you even give a shit? I said, well, of course we care. It's an active case. Of course we care if we make a recovery and get him back. Uh, and then the next question was, how much is the reward? I don't know. We've never offered a reward. Uh, it's not something that law enforcement would do. It's usually a third party or another entity that would offer reward for information.
0: The man on the phone was talking about the money that Rob Feeney had convinced John Minor to put up anonymously.
3: He did most of the talking that day uh what he wants to do the inquiries he made about the case just basically saying he's kind of a third party knows the holder knows a person that can maybe get him returned and uh, the guy actually uh uh, how do i put this told me uh just so i know who he actually was who he said he was was going to send me some uh, personal information by email he he used to be in a government agency we'll we'll say that Uh, and i don't want to really name that agency So, I mean, it was really uh, the best lead we'd had in the case in, you know, 11 years at that point.
0: The man sent some photos of the shoes that he claimed were the real thing. They certainly looked legit. Small pumps, red sequins, old-looking but in good condition. Could it really be them? Dorothy's ruby slippers, the traveling shoes, missing for all these years? The images had a digital footprint, a geotag indicating when they'd been taken and where. They'd been shot recently, in Florida. Next time on No Place Like Home. We consider The Wizard of Oz to be this quintessential American fairy tale, but you know everybody thinks it's their fairy tale.
2: Little queer kids shared with Dorothy Gale this idea that there were dreams that they could barely dare to dream.
0: Anybody who arrives at Oz belongs and is welcomed and loved.
2: And so it's not surprising that Judy Garland would become an important icon for the gay community.
0: I think the theft of the shoes affected people more deeply than they might have realized because it really felt like a part of our culture had just been stolen
3: it's much more than just a pair of ruby slippers they stand for hope for a lot of people and then i said i just want to get them back
2: and he kept pressing me are these the slippers and i'm like i don't have enough to go by
3: brian who do you call who can you trust i i don't know who are we as a people and in our history how did we get here i mean it's so full circle It's almost fate, like that's the way it was supposed to be.
0: No Place Like Home is a presentation, direction, and production of C-13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio, in partnership with The Atavist magazine. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran. Written by Ariel Ramshandani. Narrated by Ariel Ramshandani and me, Sayward Darby. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Edited by Alistair Sherman. Produced by Paige Heimson and Valerie Thomas. Engineering, research, and production support by Adam Pershibu, Bill Schultz, Ian Mont, Bob Tabador, Patrick Antonetti, and Sean Cherry. Mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Marketing and publicity by Brian Swarth, Hilary Schiff, Melissa Wester, and Meredith Tiger. Series artwork by Kurt Courtenay. Season 1 of No Place Like Home is based on reporting by Ariel Ramshandani for The Atavist magazine. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company.
4: I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet, and I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases, from M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck, available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.